0: What is the most important character trait in life? What's the most important character trait? Um, I did some researching on this, and I found a number of different articles that kind of talked about important qualities in relationships and important traits in in business and employees and work. And and for relationships, there were a number of things that came up. I saw, you know, kindness, respect, uh, good communication is important for relationships, and then uh, some articles I saw about actually uh, being a good worker for employment, there were things like having specific skills and knowledge that was important, the ability to multitask and and having a hard work ethic and that sort of thing, and these are all good, right? But, But as I was looking through at these various lists, there was something that actually kind of appeared on every single one of them, and they didn't necessarily list it first, but it seemed to show up all the time, uh, something that sort of rose to the top. Every single list seemed to have this in common. They used different words, but got at the same idea: trustworthiness, honesty, and integrity. These are some of the words that that popped up. One article that was actually written for employers uh, had a quote from the founder and, and former CEO of Visa. Right, you know, we don't have a Visa card. Um and, and he gave this advice. He said, Hire and promote first on the basis of integrity. Second, motivation. Third, capacity. Fourth, understanding. Fifth, knowledge. And then last and least, experience. He says, Without integrity, motivation is dangerous. Without motivation, capacity is impotent. Without capacity, understanding is limited. Without understanding, knowledge is meaningless. And without knowledge, experience is blind. Experience is easy to provide, and it is put to good use by people with all of these other qualities. Right. So the, the most important trait, uh, according to this article, for work is not the kind of work that you do, but the kind of person that you are. A person of integrity. And this quality seemed to rise to the top among all the list of good qualities, both, both workers and, and in relationships. And so if integrity, honesty, trustworthiness is the most Important character trait that we can carry, then perhaps one of the most important questions that we begin to ask is well, who can we trust? And just like each of these articles had their own word for describing this trait, Christianity also has a word for it it's the word faith. Christianity affirms that the essential question is, who do you trust? Who do you put your faith in? This question is so essential that we've actually come to refer to what we believe as Christian faith. Right? It could just as easily be called Christian trust. Because at its core, Christianity confesses that the one we can trust is God. That God is ultimately faithful. And we can see this most clearly in Jesus, who was God in the flesh and who lived a perfectly faithful life. But we don't always trust God, do we? Sometimes we don't trust him because we end up trusting other things like riches and beauty and comfort. Or sometimes we don't trust him because we would rather trust ourselves. And yet, other times, if we're honest, it's hard to trust God, not because we'd rather trust in something else or ourselves, but just because life has been hard. There's been suffering and pain and challenges, and and they leave us asking, God, where are you? God, can I trust you? And if anyone had reason to ask this question, then it was Jeremiah. Who we've been reading about and and talking about and dwelling with Jeremiah and, and the people of his day, right? They had seen everything that gave them reason to trust in God taken away. The king had been dethroned and deported. The temple was torn down and the land they lived in was lost as they were all sent out into exile. But somehow, amidst all of this, though there was every reason to give up hope, every reason to stop trusting, Jeremiah continues to call the people to trust in God. He continues to remind the people of God's promises. And that's what we're reading today. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. We'll be reading verses 14 through 26. And, and as, as you're turning there, this passage falls in the middle of Jeremiah, in this section that is often called the little book of comfort, the little book of, of consolation. You know, as, as we've seen over the past few weeks, The book of Jeremiah can often be very harsh. It can be full of harsh words, full of judgment, full of, well, ultimately exile. But right at the book's center, chapters 30 through 33, lies this little book of comfort. And its tone stands in sharp contrast to all the rest of the book. Because rather than hard words of judgment and traumatic stories of exile, it holds words of hope and reminders of God's promises. At the center of the book, right in the middle of the darkness of exile, these chapters stand as this beacon of light. And so, so last week, Jimmy led us through chapter 31, where we saw that, that God promised to gather the people back together and to give them new hearts. And this week, we'll see Jeremiah continue to speak words of hope as he reminds them of God's promises. So let's read Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to make grain offerings, and to make sacrifices for all time the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if any of you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night would not come at their appointed time. Only then could my covenant with my servant David be broken so that he would not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with my ministers, the Levites, Just as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will increase the offspring of my servant David and the Levites who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed how these people say the two families that the Lord chose have been rejected by him and how they hold my people in such contempt that they no longer regard them as a nation? Thus says the Lord, Only if I had not established my covenant with day and night and the ordinances of heaven and earth would I reject the offspring of Jacob and my servant David and not choose any of his descendants as rulers over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy upon them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your promises. God, I pray that you would help us to trust in you and see your faithfulness. I ask that as we consider the words of this text that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the persistent theme throughout this passage is is that word covenant. Covenant comes up over and over again. And if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the term covenant pop up. Last week, you read about the new covenant that God was making with his people to write his law on their hearts. But what does covenant mean? What is a covenant? Right. Well, a covenant is a kind of commitment. But we know about all different kinds of commitments. Right? One kind is sort of a contractual, transactional commitment. You know, This is the kind of commitment we have with an employer. If I do work, then you will pay me. Uh, or a kind of commitment we might have with a financial institution. If I keep my money here, you will keep it safe. Uh, or the kind of commitment we have with a landlord, right? If I pay my rent, then I get to live here. Each of these is that kind of contractual or, or transactional commitment. You know, if this, then that. But there's another kind of commitment that I'm sure we know, and it's that relational kind of commitment the kind of commitment that we have with our dearest friends with close family members we are committed to one another because we love one another and and these two kinds of commitments are different right like with the landlord I expect the commitment of being able to stay in the house or apartment but I don't Expect them to drop by and have long conversations or be available whenever I'm having a rough day and need someone to talk to, right? You know? But it's the other way around with that more relational kind of commitment. You know, you you do sort of expect emotional presence and support from your friends, but you don't expect them to get, you know, pick up your bill or, or stuff like that. That's this kind of thing. So, Covenant is kind of this bridge between both of these. It it encompasses both kinds of commitment. You know, on the one hand, covenant has some expectations, right? It is not uh, so casual as a friendship. But on the other hand, covenant is full of deep affection and care. It is not so dry as a contract, so it's both formal and affectionate. There are formalities and expectations. There are vows and promises. Um, but there's this deep well of love and affection. We see this most clearly in marriage. That's why we call it a, a marriage covenant often. It, there, there's, there's responsibility and commitments, uh, but there's, there is love there as well. And this is what we see in this passage over and over again as we see covenants come up. There's, there's a, a reminder of covenants that God has made, promises that are both formal and affectionate. And this passage traces the story of God's covenants. And that's kind of what I want to do together as we think through this passage. Is Just kind of look at this large story of the covenants of God. And the story of the covenants begins at the very beginning. We see that in, in this passage. It begins at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He called the light day and the darkness. He called night. Right? And I love in our passage, did you catch that? He talked about day and night as a covenant. Right? He refers to the creation of day and night as a covenant. Because you see, when God created the world, when He established the rotation of day and night, the rhythm of the seasons, when He set up all the laws of physics, this was not only some sort of formal contractual process. It was a covenant, which means it had its formal aspects, but it was also shot through with love and affection. When God created, it was not a dry, distant, passionless project. He created out of love. It was out of the overflow of divine creativity. And we see this all of creation is filled with the love of God. And so creation was God's first covenant. And then you fast forward from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12, and you see God calling a man named Abram, who is eventually renamed Abraham. And God promises to bring him into a land, to make him into a great nation, and to bless him. Right. And then in Genesis 15, God wakes Abraham up in the middle of the night and tells him to step outside of his tent. And he says, look toward heaven and count the stars if you can so shall your descendants be right so this is another covenant that god makes the promise of people and place a place to live and a people to become and that promise began coming true it began to to happen abraham had a son named isaac And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob has 12 sons who would grow to become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so we see this coming true, that he will make him into a great nation. They have become a people, but they don't yet have a place. Through a series of events, the people of Israel come to live in Egypt where they are ruthlessly ruled by the Egyptians. And you probably know the story. God raises up Moses and then leads them out of Egypt toward this land that had been promised to them, toward a place. And along the way, they stop at Mount Sinai, where God makes another covenant with the people. He gives them laws, and and he appoints the tribe of Levi as priests to be a sign of his presence among the people to, to work and serve in the tabernacle. And just like the laws of physics that he had established in creation, the law that he gave at Sinai is not just a dry contract but it is the manifestation of his love for his people and so this becomes another covenant the, this gift of priests to serve in the tabernacle to to make sacrifices on the people's behalf and so after sinai the people wandered through the wilderness and after moses passed away joshua finally led them into this promised land and for a while they dwelt there with various leaders called judges who were raised up to protect them and lead them and point them toward god but things start going pretty bad things get messy and so the people end up crying out for a king and they appoint a man named saul to be king And Saul did well for a while, but he ends up becoming consumed with his own kind of political agenda and eventually starts to just go downright mad. And and so God anointed David to become king. And David, as we know, was fierce as he battled Goliath, and he was also foolish as he lusted after Bathsheba. But amidst his ferocity and his foolishness, he is called a man after God's own heart because he admits his wrongdoing and he turns to God in repentance and trust. And so when David became king, God makes another covenant with him. God says to him, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so this was another uh, covenant, the gift of a king to rule and to reign. And then after David died, his son Solomon became king and did many great things. He's the one who built the temple originally, and and he expands the nation of Israel. But by the end of his life, he had turned away from God and pursued all kinds of other things. And after Solomon's death, the nation is sort of thrown into all kinds of political turmoil. The nation ends up dividing into two, a northern and a southern kingdom. There's northern Israel and southern Judah. And then comes that long line of king after king after king that we read about in Kings. And some of them are good, trusting God, but many of them are evil, turning away from God. And after a while, the northern kingdom kingdom ends up falling to the Assyrians, and those people are carted off into exile. But Judah still remains. Right, Jerusalem still remains. The temple still stands. But we've been reading Jeremiah, and we know what happens. Finally, we get to Jeremiah's day when the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians. And when they invaded Judah, they deported the king, they destroyed the temple, and they left everyone else in exile. And this is the world that Jeremiah is speaking to this is the world that the people are now living in and so we step back and kind of look at this big picture and consider all of the covenants that god had made the covenant to abraham the promise of a place the covenant with the levites the promise of a priesthood the covenant with david the promise of a kingdom. But then, consider the people's circumstances. There's no king because the kingdom has fallen. There are no priests because the temple's been destroyed. And there is no place because they're in exile. The people's circumstances seem to fly in the face Of all of God's covenants. So the question arises can we trust God? And in verse 24, we see this. It says, Have you not observed how these people say the families that the Lord chose have been rejected by Him? The people are beginning to wonder, right? They no longer think that God can be trusted. The covenants are broken. The people are rejected. But there is at least one covenant that remains. And this is what Jeremiah points to. In verse 20, Jeremiah speaks for God, if any of you could break the covenant that I have with the day, and the covenant that I have with the night, so that day and night would not come at their appointed time. Only then could my covenant with my servant David be broken so that he would not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with my ministers, the Levites. Just as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will increase the offspring of my servant David and the Levites who minister to me. You see, there is every reason to give up hope. There is every reason to turn away from God. There's no king, there's no priests, there's no temple, there's no home, but there is still day and night. The covenant of creation Still stands firm. It's as though Jeremiah is saying, though it may be night now, day is still coming. The covenant of day and night is not broken, and neither are any of the other covenants. And so Jeremiah proclaims, the days are coming when I will fulfill the promise I made. He says a righteous branch will spring up from David. He says the people will be brought back to justice and righteousness in the land. He says that David will never lack a man on the throne and the priests will never lack a man in my presence. Though there is every reason to doubt, Jeremiah insists that God is still trustworthy. That God will be faithful. So how does God keep these covenants? How will God fulfill these promises? Well, if you continue through the narrative of Scripture you see that eventually the people do return to the land and they do rebuild the temple, but there still isn't a king. Right? They are still ruled by another force. The Babylonians are replaced by the Persians and the Persians are replaced by the Romans. And through all of that, the people wait. Wait wondering if there will ever be a king again. And then one day, this man named Jesus shows up. And he is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. And he works wonders, just like in the old days when there were kings and prophets. And he gains quite a following and all the people begin to wonder, if this might just be the king they've been waiting for. He enters Jerusalem on a red carpet of coats that have been cast out before him, to a parade of palm branches waving back and forth, to cries of Hosanna. But by the end of the week, things look a little different. The Romans got a hold of him, the crowds turned against him, and Jesus hung on a cross with a sign over him that read, the King of the Jews. The people lost their hope again. And this sign was meant to mock. But it was truer than anyone could have ever expected. Because a few days later, something happened that no one, expected. Ephesians puts it this way. God put His power to work in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So how did God fulfill His covenants? Or to put it another way, who did all of the covenants point toward? You see, Jeremiah says, I will raise up a righteous branch. And this will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Well, who is our righteousness? righteousness. Jeremiah says that David will never lack a man to sit on the throne. Well, who sits on the throne? Jeremiah says that the priests shall never lack a man in God's presence to make sacrifices before him. Well, who Made the ultimate sacrifice and now sits in the presence of God at his right hand. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus. All of these covenants are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the king on the throne, He is the branch that was raised up in righteousness. He is the priest in the presence of God. And see, we have an advantage over the people of Israel because we have this sort of special perspective that we can see all of this. We can see all of these covenants fulfilled in Christ. And yet, in other ways, we actually find ourselves in a very similar place as the people of Israel. Because just as they were questioning God's faithfulness and waiting to be restored, we too can find ourselves asking, when is God going to restore all things? Or is he going to do it at all? And this question, this longing, this waiting is the season that we are about to enter into as a church. The season of Advent is all about waiting and longing for God to fulfill His covenant. Just as the people waited for God to bring restoration, so do we. And the question that sits at the center of Advent is can we trust God? When the people wondered about all of these covenants and whether God was going to fulfill them, Jeremiah pointed back to the very first one, the covenant of creation. And he said, This covenant still stands, so do the rest. You can trust God. Well, we do this very same thing during Advent. As we await the coming of Christ, we point back to his first coming, and we remember that he came. And we know from his death and from his resurrection that God is faithful, that we can trust God. And so we have made our way from Genesis on. It's only right to mention Revelation where just like Jeremiah says, I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy upon them. We hear the voice and Revelation proclaim, I am making all things new. And so may we join with it in our cry, Come, Lord Jesus, come, as we trust Him to come again. Amen.